Okay, good morning. We're going to look at Job some more this morning. And um, so let me pray as we get going. Father, we're thankful for the chance um, to spend time in the Word this morning. We're thankful that your mercies are new every morning, that we have a privilege of walking with you and hearing from you and, and your Word and seeing your glory in creation. Pray that we would be thankful for every breath that we draw, that we would be thankful that we have the privilege of being near you in your Son and by the Spirit. Pray that we would continually think about that. Pray without ceasing that you'd be honored. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're going to continue in uh, the book of Job. My, uh, I, I, I'm going to remind you guys sort of the operating theme we're working on as we work out this land, seed, and blessing. I'm going really from Genesis 1 all the way through. The operating theme is that um, we're a people who are dwelling with the king in his kingdom. We were supposed to dwell with the sovereign Lord in his kingdom in Genesis 1 and 2, and then in Genesis 3, we get kicked out, right? And we, we're, we're his enemies. So we want to be his people dwelling in his kingdom with him. And that essentially presses you all the way through. Um, who's going to dwell with the Lord? Who gets to dwell with him? And, and how do you get to dwell with him? And um, how does that occur? And you see, you see that come all the way till Revelation 21, where God's dwelling places with man, if you guys remember that. And um, we dwell with him and he with us and He's the king, and we're in his kingdom, and it's consummated, and it's sort of the blessed hope that we're all pressing toward. Uh, when we come to the wisdom literature, I, I, I'm going to remind you, even though I'm going to spend more time in Job than I hope to, um, I, I'll remind you about the wisdom literature, that it is always um, really focused on how do you live with the king and his kingdom as his subjects. It doesn't, it doesn't forward the story. There's, there's very little, in the, in the writings there is some forwarding of the story, but in the wisdom literature, specifically Job, Proverbs, um, Ecclesiastes, some of those, Song of Solomon, they don't really forward the story uh, that we're looking at in biblical theology. So to some degree, most biblical theologians will say, and most biblical theologies you read will just skip, will skip the wisdom literature. Um, the reason I'm not skipping it is not, is not because I think all those biblical theologians are incorrect in their judgments. Like, well, if only you knew it does forward the story. I'm not arguing that. I'm just saying we're going to go book, through, book by book and put all these books in their place um, in the Scripture, if you will, and go through them. I don't mean put them in their place like, you know, you put your dog in its place or something, but put them in sort of their canonical order and walk through them and... Um, and see what it looks like, not just, to, not just what the story is about dwelling with the king and his kingdom as his people, but, but what it looks like to actually be his people dwelling with him, how, how we do that um, well. And so we'll look at the uh, wisdom literature under that. If you guys remember, the last um, time we talked about Job, we looked at Job um, and his suffering. So what, what happened to him, right? The the fact that he was a godly man, he had the favor of the Lord, Satan came into the presence of the sons of God or the angels with the Lord, and Satan 
wasn't treated by the Lord, if you remember. The Lord asked Satan, what are you doing here, etc. And then the Lord asked Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Satan's primary challenge was um, Job only blesses you because you prosper him. Job, Job doesn't think you're good. He likes your gifts, right? Um, and so he blesses you because you prosper him, and that's it. If you stop prospering him, he would curse you, right? Um, and, and there are some interesting questions for us to ask there as those people who claim to be followers of the Lord. One would be, um, do we ever suspect ourselves of only blessing the Lord in as much as he prospers us? Um, if so, um, you'll find out if that's the case or not through suffering. It's actually, so to press on this, the, one of the reasons that suffering produces hope is because you recognize when you persevere in the faith in suffering that you must belong to him because you're not sticking around for the good gifts at that point. You guys follow me on that? Um, you must belong to him because you know you would walk away if, if it were just you. Um, but it's because you can't that you stick with him, and it produces a kind of hope in you. Oh, I trust in the Lord. Essentially, Satan is challenging the notion that anybody's really like that. Essentially, your creatures just want stuff from you. And if we just remove that from Job, he'll curse you to your face. So he says it a couple times. So look at Job 1. We'll look there again. Job 1 in verse um, 9 Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him? And his house and all that he has on every side. You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. See, if you just touch his stuff, he'll curse you. Go to chapter 2 and verse 5. Again, chapter 2, verse 5, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh. In other words, now his body here. See, before in verse 11 of chapter 1, it was touch all that he has. His wife, his children, if you will, his, his stuff. His wife lives, um, but they're both afflicted. Now it's touch his physical body, touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. So the challenge of Satan is what? Job will do what? Correct. He'll deny you if you take away the things you've blessed him with, and he will curse you to your face. He'll curse you to your face. Now, what does Job do? Look at verse 20 of chapter 1. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, he's being accused of going to be cursing, but he doesn't curse. What does he do instead of cursing? And this language is intentional. He doesn't curse. Instead, he blesses. blesses. Now, look at verse 22 of chapter 1. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. He doesn't curse God. He doesn't charge him with wrong. In all this, he doesn't sin. His wife, if you remember, challenges him on his holding his integrity. And he responds to her that she's being foolish. Verse 10 of chapter 2, look there. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? 
or disaster. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. What have you guys heard the end of um, chapter 1 and then here um, toward the end of chapter 2? What have you heard in both cases? What does Job not do? He's not sinning with his lips, right? He's holding fast his integrity. He's not cursing God, but blessing him. That's the judgment on him. His friends, three friends initially show up, if you remember. They initially show up and they see the disaster that Job has gone under. And, and what's their initial response? They sit with him and they weep with him. Good, godly, wise response. And we look at this scene and we go, hey, they sit with him and they weep with him for seven days and seven nights, right? Well, that's, that's sort of, that's, there's an emphasis there on a complete period of time. Like they're just, they're doing the right thing for the right amount of time, right? Um, they're spending time with him. They didn't speak a word to him. They just sat with him, wept with him and cared for him. And so it starts out quite good, quite good. But then Job opens his mouth. Uh, and, and so we get, start getting a response. The question is, does Job curse? Does Job curse? So let's, let's look at that because that's Satan's challenge. Job will curse you if you take stuff from him. So does he? Let's look at chapter one, or chapter three, sorry, verse one. And... Um, Look at the first phrase. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. So let's read that. And Job said, let's read his curse. It's really in verses 1 through 10, Job's curse. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born. And the night that said a man is conceived, let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let the gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let darkness, thick darkness, seize it. You guys understand what's happening here. This is decreation language, isn't it? It's decreation language. So he's saying, um, you, you go back to Gen- He's picking up language from Genesis 1-2 and 1-3 and following. And he's like, I, I just... I want you to, you know, I wish I could curse the day of my birth, sort of decreate it and go back to the darkness, right? Rather than the light, go back to that sort of um, watery veil, if you will. Um, So then he goes on, behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those who curse it, who curse, let those who curse, sorry, let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Now, Leviathan is this creature, if you will, that, that lives in the watery depths. He's, it, it's a symbol of death. Symbol of death. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning. Because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Uh, it, interesting language again. Nor see the eyelids of the morning. What follows the darkness or the evening? The light or the morning. We'll look at that on Sunday um, with day one. Um, what's interesting about this is he's cursing. He's cursing the day of his birth. In, in 
quite explicit sort of decreational terms. You guys follow that? Okay. If we think about the creation in Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2 in a kind of embryonic form in darkness in a sort of water under a watery veil and out from that emerges um, the, the birth of creation, if you will, um, the, you know, as, the, as creation matures and light comes in, the watery veil is removed. And ba- basically Job's saying um, that all sort of is replayed in my birth. I'm, in a, I'm covered with water, I'm in deep darkness, and out I come into the morning light, and, you know, and, and he's like, just, just let's undo that whole thing, right? Um, there's a kind of, I want to crawl back into my mother's womb. He'll say this at some point, and just be stillborn, right? Um, so, he's cursing the day. Let, let's ask a question. Is Job cursing God here? It seems, it's, it's, and that's what his three friends are going to accuse him of, actually. That, that you're sinning now, Job. Right? They're quiet, and they sit with him as long as he's quiet and is holding his peace. But the moment he begins to curse the day of his birth, um, his friends, they... Um, can't hold their peace any longer, right? So, um, is he cursing God? The answer is no. He's doing what someone in deep suffering, severe suffering does. Keep in mind, all of his children are dead. All of them. All of his stuff is gone. Everybody knows. All his servants, which based on the fact that Job was a righteous and godly man, he probably had good friendships with the servants. Right? I mean, he probably wasn't one who mistreated them. All gone. Everybody's dead. His wife. And she's basically like, Job, curse God and die. I mean, this isn't a pleasant life situation. <laughs> you know? So, and he's just saying, I wish I'd never been born. Uh, this is what people in real suffering can do. Is it a sin to be there? No. He's not sinning here. I mean, we have the judgment on him. He will sin with his lips. He will. It's coming, but it hasn't come yet. And it isn't ever a sin where he curses God. And that's an important distinction to keep in mind. We're told he curses, but we're expressly told, and the language isn't accidental here, he doesn't curse God. He curses the day of his birth. Right? Um, Now look at, he laments, verse 11 through 26. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why wasn't I just stillborn? Why did the, the knees receive me? You guys understand the knees receiving him at birth. Or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have laid down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as hidden as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling and the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and greater there and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul who long for death but it comes not and dig for 
dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? Pay attention to that language just real quick. Um, he, he's, he's bemoaning his existence, isn't he? He's bemoaning his existence, the fact that he lives. If I was just dead, I'd be at rest. But no, I live. If I had just been stillborn, if I had just been in that watery darkness of my mother's womb and came out dead and never seen the light, um, I would be at rest. But instead, I'm living. And, and God has done what? He's hedged me in. Do you guys remember that language in chapter 1? You've put a hedge around him. Now for Job, the hedge that God has put around him has become, rather than a blessed protection, in Job's mind it's become like a prison that he can't escape. Yeah, you protect my life and keep me alive. You've hedged me into this life, you know, and I feel a bit imprisoned by it. Um, it's, the language here isn't accidental, guys. He just, it's intentionally uh, picking up on what's been happening. So now he gets very internally, you know, if you will, into his head. And he says this, For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me. Notice how much I is being used. It's, not, it's no longer kind of a third-party distant thing, but a personal thing. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. In other words, is he right that trouble has come for him? Certainly. Is he right that he has no rest? Yes. Yeah. He wasn't created for tr- trouble and turmoil. It's come for him. He was created to be born, if you will, into the light, into God's good creation, and to rest in God, enjoy him, and worship him for eternity. And he was walking as a righteous, godly man, blameless in his ways, and calamity has come upon him, and he'd rather just be dead. You could imagine if all of your children died in a day, thinking, I'd rather just go now. Right? You, you could understand why that would be. If you, especially, if those of you who don't have kids, eventually you will, and you'll get it. Um, it, it you just can't imagine what, what's the point. Like, there's something almost so unnatural about the whole thing. Um, there is something that is unnatural about the whole thing, but that you just don't know what the point of it all would be anymore. So you, you just, I can't imagine where he's at. Um, it's not supposed to be this way. So he's crying out. He's lamenting. Cursing the day of his birth. So now here comes the question. Um, Job is seen as, I would make a statement. Job is seen as patient and godly, even in lament and struggle. Maybe I should point that out before I move on. Look, look, at, um, look at James chapter 5. James 5. Even, even as Job laments, he's being seen as patient and godly. In verse 7, he's just, by the way, in, in chapter 5, he's told you about... Um, well, I'll just, I don't have time. I'll just say this. Verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You know, farmers, they till, they, they sow, they water, 
and then they patiently wait for the crop and the fruit that they're, they've been waiting for. So he says, look how they do it. You, you also, verse 8, be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Do you guys notice the example he gives? Who's been patient and steadfast in the midst of suffering? Job. You've heard about his steadfastness and patience in the midst of suffering. Be like him. Be like him. Yet this is a man who laments. The psalmists lament too, don't they? More of the psalms are lament than praise. You guys know that? If you remember when we went through the Psalter, the majority of the, front of the Psalter, it, and it really as a movement, it moves from lament to praise. Lament to praise. Um, and I said, it's, there's a comparison there with Christ, who goes from suffering to glory. And, and so it's, it's part of the Christian life to lament. We have a whole book called Lamentations, right? <laughs> the whole book is about lamenting. Um, it's part of what Christians do because we look at the reality of the fallen world around us and how that's affecting us. Um, and in some cases, our own sin and how that's bearing um, bad fruit. And we lament. And rightly so. Rightly so. We should. In fact, this is why um, Lloyd-Jones, well, you guys know who Martin Lloyd-Jones is? Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a book called On Spiritual Depression. Really, it was a series of sermons on spiritual depression that got put in a book. And Lloyd-Jones actually makes the argument at one point that, that the melancholy person, you guys know what I mean when I say the melancholy person? The melancholy person is the person who's kind of um, seeing the world um, in, in a more grim fashion. They're a little more up and down. They, they have, they're given to depression, etc., and Lloyd-Jones says the melancholy person is actually the most realistic person. They're seeing the world for what it really is. The kind of happy-go-lucky, optimistic person is the one who's not very re- realistic, right? They're, they're not really seeing the truth about the world. Now, he doesn't mean by that the melancholy person is always reacting properly to the world as it is. He just means they're more realistic about what the real state of the world is. There's probably some truth to that right? Um, A person in dark depression in some ways may have a more realistic view of the world than the person who's feeling happy-go-lucky. I don't mean they're responding in a better way to it, um, but I mean they might have a more realistic view of it. Things really are grim. They are. People die. That's a grim reality, right? Um, Horrible things happen across this planet, right? You sin and offend the holiness of the Lord all the time. I mean, you think about all the things that are really are grim. So lament really is a part of the Christian life, and we've pressed it far away from us as a culture. We don't like it, so we entertain ourselves mindlessly to stay away from having to face it, right? Um, in fact, we can't stand a movie that doesn't have a happy ending, 
right? When the movie has a really sad ending, it's like this. Some of you might be cultured enough that you do, but most of us are like, this movie stunk. It left me with a sad ending. What's that about, right? <laughs> and um, it just, we just, everything we want to press away from us, you know, I, Truman, I've told you guys, Truman has made the point that our culture builds our graveyards as far away from our sight as we can get them. We don't want to see them anymore. They used to be right outside your church door. Like you literally walked up in your church and your graveyard was the same place. So when you were walking into church, you knew why you were there, right? Because you got to solve that problem that you saw walking in the doors, right? Not you have to come in and get entertained. Um, in fact, it goes further than that. If you go to some of the European cathedrals that I've been in, they literally bury some of the pastors in the floor, so you're walking down the, the aisle between the pews and you see this big, huge tombstone of the pastor who's buried there, right? That would be grand, I think. I'd love to be buried in the floor of the church, but I don't think it's going to happen and America won't make it legal. So, oh well. If they ever do legalize that and I die, y'all bury me in the floor of the church. That'd be great. Um, I'll leave some money for you to do that. Afford to rip it up and do it. All right, so what, how do Job's friends respond? What's the relationship between piety and prosperity, right? That, that's really going to be a huge question going through the book of Job. What is the relationship between piety, godliness, and prosperity? Um, this is the question that's begged by Job's three friends. Here's, here's the assumption of Job's three friends. If you're pious, you'll be prosperous. If you're impious, <clears throat> you will suffer. That's essentially their math. Their calculation is really simple. If you're godly, prosperity will follow. If you're ungodly, suffering will follow. That's how they do math spiritually. Um, that's, a, that's their central contention. and I, You need to get a hold of that uh, because tends to creep into all of us. And, and part of the reason it does is because there's a lot of truth in it. So it's, it's, it's not that everything, in fact, almost nothing Job's friends, says, friends say is untrue. I, I'd have to think through what they say that's not true. The vast, I would say nearly everything they say is True. That's not going to be the problem. The problem is going to be a, pro a problem of application. Um, so they, let, let's, let's look at it. Um, let's start with Job's three friends. Just so you know, there are a cycle of speeches. They start in Job 4. They go through Job 26. Um, and when I say a cycle of speeches, there are the speeches by his three friends, and there are the replies of Job. <laughs> um, Eliphaz gives three speeches. Bildad gives three speeches, and Zophar gives two speeches. Zophar's third speech is cut off, partly for literary purposes, um, and then you get Job's reply in between. So Eliphaz will give a speech. His, so we're going to walk, here's what I'm going to do, is walk through the central argument of each friend. So we're going to walk through the central argument of each of Job's three friends by looking at their speeches, and we're going to look at their speeches per friend. So I'm not just going to go sequentially. I'm going to say Eliphaz speech one, Eliphaz speech two, Eliphaz speech three. What's Eliphaz essentially arguing? <clears throat> Bildad speech one, Bildad speech two, Bildad speech three. What's Bildad essentially arguing? 
And then the same thing with Zophar, speech one and speech two. We will not look at Job's replies until next week. Next week, we'll look at Job's replies and then <clears throat> and, and consider that. So Eliphaz, speech one. Let's look at Job four. Job four. And I'll focus in on some texts. I won't read all these speeches. They're too long. But I do want to look. His, his speech goes in, verse, in chapters four and five, his first speech, um, which is his longest. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, now he's got to answer what? What's he answering? Job's lament. Does Job need an answer to his lament? No. He's lamenting. It's, it's like um, Eliphaz has never read Psalm 88. Psalm 88, if you guys read that psalm, it, it hopefully, go back and remind yourself of it, it just ends dark. There's no like positive ending to it, which really rattles us, but it's, it's reality. It ends that way, and, and you don't, you, Psalm 88 doesn't expect you need an, a reply, right? Um, here the friends see Job lamenting, rightly so, given his circumstances, and they just cannot not reply to it. And I bring this up because you all, have, have you all been with somebody who's lamenting because of loss and sorrow and difficulty, right? Um, learn the lesson of his friends initially. They kept their mouths shut. Um, but his, is there an appropriate time to reply? Yes, and an appropriate way to reply. But his friends are pretty certain they know what the problem is. They hear Job's lament, and they know what the problem is, and they're going to reply, and the problem is Job. And they're confident about that. So let's look. If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? It's a nice way to start a question of your friend. If I try to speak to you, you're going to be impatient with me. Yet, who can keep from speaking? i got to speak up. That's what Eliphaz is saying. Behold, you've instructed many, and you've strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. Um, what's he telling Job right off the bat? I have to speak up. Are you going to listen to me and be impatient with me? It doesn't really matter if you are. You guys ever suspect that when you're about to speak up to somebody? Are they going to be impatient with me? Okay. And then he's like, but I can't, I just can't not say it. I got to say it. So he's going to say it. And where does he start with? You're a good guy. You've been a help to other people. So as his friend, he looks at Job and says, in many ways, you've been a help to other people, right? You've encouraged other people in their difficult times. And now he's going to go on to say this, but now it has come to you and you were impatient. It touches you and you were dismayed. Um, Which is a bit of a, you know, you have to stop and think about like, you're charging him with being dismayed. His children are all dead. Like, anyway, so you understand, what, is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? He, he, this is actually a, a comfort. He's trying to comfort Job by saying, you've been a godly guy. You, you're, you're integ- you've hold fast your integrity. Um, but then he's going to sort of turn. Going to sort of turn here. So look at verse 7. Remember... Who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. 
By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. What's his central argument? There must be some sin you're doing that's causing all this. The central argument is you reap what you sow. That's what it is. You reap what you sow. By the way, is that a true biblical principle? Yeah. Yeah. We're told that in Scripture. A man reaps what he sows. Well, how does how does he know that? Well, I think I, I argued I think in the first week I think this is likely written by Moses, um, because of a lot of the language, the timing, the similar stuff that he the period is in the period of the patriarchs um, that it takes place. Um, many of the the ways at which this book speaks um, are phrases that we find in Moses, um, phrases we find in the language of the patriarchal period in Genesis. Um, I think Moses is writing about a Gentile believer, which is fascinating, if true. Either way, um, everybody agrees it's written during the patriarchal period. It's probably about, it's probably contemporaneous with something like Genesis and its r- period of writing. It's certainly in its period of happening or occurring. Um, and I'm guessing by divine revelation. There's probably some way in which we can say by general um, or by what you might call natural revelation, we would know a man reaps what he sows. In other words, there's, we talk about natural law, the things God has written the law in our hearts. We know, for example, Paul will say in Romans 1.32, that's the other thing. So he probably has special revelation, but he also is able to know this by natural revelation. How do I know that? Paul will say in Romans 1.32 of the pagans who don't know, who don't have special revelation. He says of them, that though they, they know that those who do such things deserve death. How do they know that? Right? They not only do them, they give approval to those who practice them. So they know God is. They know God has given a law. They know they're violating it. And they know that violation of God's law brings serious consequences. Even death. And they know that all naturally. Everybody does. They suppress that truth in unrighteousness. That's Paul's argument from Romans 1.18 through, through 32. Um, it also seems to be David's argument in Psalm 19. Right? So I, I, it, it's possible he, this, that he knew this naturally. It's possible that he has some, Eliphaz has some uh, access to divine revelation. What does that mean? Um, possibly uh, people, oral Revelation by oral tradition at this point, potentially. Um, so, either way, he's saying you reap what you sow. Is that a true principle? Yes. Yes. Generally true. And it's, it's sort of a non-specific rebuke. He isn't like taking Job on riding his grill. He's not saying, Job, you're reaping what you're sowing. He's saying, look, don't we know... Have the innocent ever perished, right? Um, as I've seen, all those who plow iniquity sow trouble, you know, and sow trouble reap the same. You guys follow? He's making a kind of general argument of what's true. And 
sort of gently saying, this is probably your problem, Job. Now, Eliphaz doesn't continue to be this gentle, but he kind of starts off non-specifically. As his speeches go um, along, he gets more directly in Job's grill, more directly accusing Job. But go to... um, Go to, go to chapter 4, verse 17. Let's just pick up a couple of little things here. Can, can mortal man be, right, be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? What's the answer to the question? Yes. Can a mortal man be pure before his maker? Sorry. The answer to the question is no. Yeah, good. It's going to start, gonna start calling you St. Pelagius, I guess. The, um, so, the, <laughs> right, but... Can a mortal man be right in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? No. Is he right about that, Tim? Yes. Yes. <laughs> exactly. What he's inferring is true. What he's inferring is true. No one can really be right before his maker or pure before God. And so he's insinuating something toward Job again, isn't he? This has got to be some sin. Look at chapter 5 and verse 2. Surely vexation kills the fool... And jealousy slays the simple. I have seen the fool taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling. His children are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate, and there's no one to deliver them. Let's pay attention. What happened to Job's children? They died. And what? whose children die? The fool's children die. The hungry eat his harvest, and he even takes, take, he takes it even out of the thorns, and the thirsty pant after his wealth. wealth. What happens to the fool? The others take what he has away from him. What happened to Job? His stuff was taken away from him. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. But a man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Right? Like, I mean, this is... All generally true, but wrongly, but being delivered to the wrong guy. And incredibly harsh in a non or indirect way. Look look at chapter 5 and verse 17. Chapter 5 and verse 17. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, do not despise the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. Um, let, let, let me ask a question. Is it true that the one whom God reproves is blessed? That we shouldn't despise the discipline of the Almighty? Yeah, that's true. We're, I mean, we're flat out taught that in Hebrews 12, right? There's no question What's his, what's, what's his, what's he generally saying, but he's really saying to Job, ultimately, what's he saying? What's his argument here? God is disciplining you for some sin. There's clearly some unrighteousness in you that's brought this about, and God is disciplining you, but don't fear, because God disciplines the one he loves. Don't despise him. In fact, if you just repent of your sins, you'll be restored. You'll be restored. That's what he's going to go on to say. Look at verse 26 of chapter 5. 
You shall come to your grave in ripe old age, like a sheaf gathered up in its season. Remember, you want to you want to live to ripe old age. Uh, in the Bible, you don't hear people saying, "I want to die young." Right? That's never being stated in Scripture. It's a blessing to die in a ripe old age. And he's saying you're going to you're going to die in a ripe old age. That that's like if you're going to repent, you're going to turn to the Lord. He's going to he's going to he's going to bless you. And, and you'll die in a ripe old age. That's sort of the, the, the final proof of that. Um, look at his second speech, Job 15. Job 15, let's look at Eliphaz's second speech. Job replies to him, then the other two friends jump in, um, which we'll come to in a minute. Job 15. Then, then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? It's not, you know, when you basically are telling someone your, your, your argument is like wind, that's, you know, not complimentary. Should he argue in unprofitable talk or in words with which he can do no good? But you are doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God. For your iniquity teaches your mouth, and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, and not I. Your own lips testify against you. Now, listen, has Eliphaz gotten more personal now? More directly personal. Listen, it's because you're saying these stupid things, Job, these ungodly things. Um, that's why you're, you're, it's, it's just being demonstrated. Iniquity has taught your mouth, and your own mouth is condemning you. Verse 7, are you the first man who was born, or were you brought before, forth before the hills? Have you listened to the counsel of God, and do you limit wisdom to yourself? In other words, are you the only guy who knows anything? Because Job's going to respond and say, you, you brothers are unwise, essentially. And they're going to say, do you think you're the only guy who's wise out here? See, it's pride. Your mouth is shooting off in iniquity. Goes on. Verse 14, what is man that he can be pure? Or he who was born of a woman that he can be righteous? Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is abominable and corrupt, a man who drinks injustice like water. Um, what, what, <laughs> is it true, by the way, that, that I mean, it, no one's really holy in God's sight? Even the angels. You guys remember the seraphim in Isaiah 6. Even they are covering themselves. The holy ones. Even they have to cover themselves in the sight of God. Right? And, and, and he's saying, you're not holy. Clearly you're a sinner. Um, you, you drink injustice like water. Uh, this is getting pretty pointed. It's all generally true. Verse 20, the wicked man writhes in pain all his days. Um, you, you, did we just see at the beginning of this book Job writhing in pain? Yes, even having to use pots to scrape himself and, you know, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return, right? This is a guy who's writhing and he's just saying, that's the, what the wicked do. Um, verse 29, he will not be rich and his wealth will not endure nor his possessions spread on the, over the earth. What will not happen to a wicked man? 
He will not be rich and his wealth will not endure. Nor will his possessions spread over the earth. He will not depart from darkness. The flame will dry up his shoots. You know, just everything's going to go bad. For the, verse 34, for the company of the godless is barren and fire consumes the tents of bribery. Um, I mean, this is just, he's just coming hard after Job and his situation at this point. Um, and he's saying things that are generally true, but then that you see all these exceptions to. So for example, in Psalm 73, what is, what is Asaph doing? Why do the wicked prosper? Kind of made me stumble. Wasn't, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Aren't we taught proverbially that the wicked don't prosper, the godly prosper? You guys read the Proverbs. If you read the Proverbs, what happens to the godly, the hardworking, the man who keeps his tongue? He prospers. He has a good reputation. The man who raises his children in the fear of the Lord, he prospers. He has a good reputation. He has godly children who never depart from it. The man who marries a godly woman, right? He has a blessed marriage. So think about this. If you just do all these things that are generally wise in the Proverbs, keep your mouth shut, you'll have a good reputation. Work hard, you'll prosper financially, right? Walk with the Lord, you'll be blessed in a variety of manners. Marry a godly woman, marriage will be a blessing to you your whole life. Raise your children in the fear of the Lord, your children will never depart from the truth. You'll have all this blessing, okay? And essentially, these guys are taking the Proverbs, if you will, that proverbial truth, and they're holding it up against Job's situation and saying, well, you must not have been this guy who walked in godly wisdom. You must not have feared the Lord because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and so they challenge his fear of God. Notice you guys heard them say, Maybe your fear of God is escaping you, right? You must not be that guy. Otherwise, this stuff wouldn't be happening to you. Correct. It's David's early suffering has nothing to do with his sin. His late suffering has a lot to do with his sin, right? If you guys remember... Um, the suffering of the prophets, the suffering most expressly of the Christ has nothing to do with any ungodliness. Um, so they're telling you general truths and they're misapplying them. Yes, sir. Right. Everybody sees, but you know, really, we are, we are sinners at heart. Yeah. And, and so we have this dichotomy, this fight that goes on, and and it looks like, you know, I, I see that that dark side being really brought forth in spades by his friends. Yeah, his friends are basically saying, "We know you. You know, essentially, the judgment of God in in Job one is you're godly and upright and." righteous, right? But we know, you know, that may be true because you trust him, but 
but we also know you're really a sinner. And this is really God's justice against you for your sin. For sure. It must be his discipline. Repent and things will turn around. You'll, you'll hear that come from them on more than one occasion. Uh, look at um, Job 22. Let's, let's try to wrap Eliphaz up here. And then the other two re- relatively quickly. Um, 22.1, then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, now drop down to verse 5, is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. I mean, this is getting pretty bad, right? You can see how it's just, <laughs> the, the game is getting upped, right? Job isn't listening. I, okay, so pastorally, and maybe day-to-day in your life and walking with people, um, you lay down the truth generally. They don't seem to respond. You get a little more specific with them. They still don't seem to respond. So now you just get about as dramatic as you can possibly get to see if they'll finally respond. It's kind of the feel you're getting here. He's just up in his game, right? It's, it's the kind of thing a parent does with his child, right? That, unfortunately, starts off just saying, you know, if people, if, if people behave, they don't suffer these kinds of consequences. No, I was behaving. No, you, you, really, you really weren't behaving. Who really behaves all the time? You were kind of out of line. That's why this is happening. No, no, not really. I really wasn't. Out, that's not why this has happened. It wasn't because I'm out of line. You're a wicked sinner. We all see it all the time. You know, <laughs> stop being so prideful. Okay, okay. all right, so. Look at verse 21 of chapter 22. Agree with God and be at peace. Thereby good will come to you. You guys notice that? Receive instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. If you remove injustice far from your tents. Listen, if you would stop being sinful and unjust, and they're even accusing Job now, you probably treated your servants unjustly. You were probably an unjust businessman. You probably weren't really godly. This is why this kind of stuff is happening. If you would knock that off, you would prosper. If you would just repent, all would go well for you. <sighs> right? Um, okay. So, so that's where they, they go. It's, it's pretty harsh because you imagine these speeches are being given to a man a week after, a week after, he lost his children and his stuff. And they're given in the face of the fact that he laments. And they're coming at him saying, clearly you sinned. And he's saying, no, I didn't. I didn't. That's what he's going to keep responding. I, we, know we know from the prologue he didn't. Now, will Job end up sinning with his mouth? Yes. But is the sin that Job subsequently participates in, the reason for the situation he's in, no. No, and it's, this is where his friends are missing it. Is Job a sinner? Yes. Does Job deserve justice like any other sinner? Yes. Does Job even sin in these conversations with his friends at some points? Yes. Does any of that have anything to do with what he's going through? No. That's the arrogance of his three friends. They think they know what God is up to. Right? And they don't. 
All right, what is Eliphaz, Eliphaz defending at the end of the day? He's defending essentially the notion that a man reaps what he sows. Are the charges against Job true? No. Um, was, what is Eliphaz missing? Wise application. And here's what Job is relentlessly teaching you. You have no idea what God's up to. You have no idea. No idea what he's up to. So be wise in your application of wisdom. Right? Um, be wise in your application of wisdom. Don't, don't take proverbial statements to people and say, if you just did this, all would be going well with you. You guys follow? Because you don't know. Sometimes you know a person, um, a person commits a crime and they go before the civil magistrate. And you know they're reaping what they sowed. That's clear. But when you see somebody who's, a, a guy marries somebody that everybody, or a gal, that everybody says don't marry that person and then the marriage is a disaster. You think, well, Right? Those kinds of things are obvious. You guys follow me on that? Okay. But there are times where you see somebody walking in godliness and they suffer. The discipline of the Lord. You don't know that. Maybe. Maybe. But you have no idea what's really happening. So you have to be really careful um, that you don't pretend like you do. Right? Um, so, all right, let's look at um, Bildad's speeches briefly. Um, that will go a little bit faster. Um, Job 8, go back there. Job 8. So, Bildad has three speeches. If you remember, it's Eliphaz speaks, Job replies. Bildad speaks, Job replies. Zophar speaks, Job replies. Then we go back to Eliphaz, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So then Bildad the Shuite answered and said, how long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be a great wind? <laughs> okay, um, so you can see he's coming right out of the gate. Does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? The answer is no. If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. What's his accusation? Your kids were sinning. I mean, you were offering sacrifices for them because you suspected that maybe they were, right? Clearly they were. That's why, they're suffer That's why they died. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. Look down at verse 20. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man nor take the hand of evil doers. Look, um, if you're a blameless man, he's not going to reject you. Right? He's not going to reject you. He'll restore you if you repent. So the, our accusation is um, actually, even though God says you're blameless, Job, which obviously Bildad doesn't know because he doesn't know about this heavenly conversation. Even though God has declared Job blameless. You guys remember that in chapter 1? Build that as saying, if you were blameless, you wouldn't be having this trouble. Blameless, by the way, does not mean spotless in the sense of without sin. Blameless means 
consistent, if you will, without hypocrisy, right? Um, the man you see in public and in private is the same man walking in righteousness, right? And so he's basically saying not true of you. It's not true of you, Job. Look at Job 18. Job 18. Build that again. Then Bildad the Shuite answered and said, How long will you hunt for words? Consider and then we will speak. Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself in anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you or the rocks be moved out of its place? What he's basically saying, you don't listen to us. You keep searching for words. Your mouth is like wind. You think you're the only smart guy here. Um, We're not idiots. I mean, that's kind of what he's coming at. We know some stuff. Then he goes on, verse 5. Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. And so he's just going to go on and just say, um, if you were not wicked, you would not be having these problems. Go down to verse 19. He has no prosperity. This is the wicked. He has no prosperity or progeny among his people and no survivor where he used to live. I mean, you guys understand, that's a direct hit. Job's lost all his prosperity, all his wealth, right? All his things and all his people, right? His progeny, his future, okay? Um, This is like, not only does your business die, but your retirement goes into the tank and you lose it all too because your, your progeny are your future. You know, it's everything. Um, if you weren't wicked, Job, this wouldn't be happening to you. That's why you've lost everything. Um, look at verse 21. Surely are, such are the dwellings of the unrighteous, such is the place of him who knows not God. Wow. You guys hear the charge there? Man, brother, you you might not even know God. Job Job 21, uh, 25, sorry, 25, Bildad's final speech. Then Bildad, it's very short. Then Bildad the Shuite, notice the speeches get shorter as you go through. Then Bildad the Shuite answered and said, Dominion and, and fear are with God. He makes peace in his high heaven. Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does his light not arise? How then can a man be right in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright, and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man who is a maggot, and the son of man who is a worm? Okay, that's true. All true. Inappropriately applied to Job's situation. What's Bildad defending? If you look at Bildad's defense, it's really of God's justice. So if Eliphaz is mostly on the topic of you reap what you sow, that has to do with God's justice. Bildad is specifically coming at the notion of God's justice, just expressly defending God's justice. And, And he's right about God's justice. But but he's wrong about Job. And so what's he lacking? Wise application. God is just. You're a worm. You deserve all of this. Uh Uh-huh. 
Right? Okay? In that sense, in that global sense, that's true. But Job's like, you're saying I'm guilty of some sin that brought this about, and that's not true. And Job's right, and Bildad's wrong. Right? Um, All right. Last one. Um, Zophar. We won't spend much time here either. Job 11. He only has two speeches. We'll look at a couple of selections from them. Then Zophar, the Namathite, answered and said, Should a multitude of words go unanswered, and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men, and when you mock, shall no one shame you? Like, here I am. I am here to shame you. Right? Okay. For you say, my doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, and he would tell you the secrets of his wisdom. There's a real deep irony there, isn't there? <laughs> because what is the... He, Zophar doesn't know the secrets of his wisdom, right? Of God, If God would just open and speak and tell us his secrets, what would Job hear, by the way? He would hear what he heard, what was said in Job 1. Job's blameless and righteous, and right? But that's not what he's being accused of by Zophar. Um, he's saying, he's, he's, his assumption is, if God opened his mouth, if you heard what he had to say, you think you're fine, but if God opened his mouth, you'd hear the truth about you. For he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you um, less than your guilt deserves. You guys, you guys, are you guys catching that? He's exacting from you less than your guilt deserves. I mean, there's a theological way in which you can say that's true about anybody. But, but with regard to Job and how he was walking with the Lord and what happened to him, it's entirely untrue. Entirely untrue. He didn't, quote unquote, deserve this. Do all des- sinners deserve justice and help? Yes, of course. Does Job deserve this specific suffering in the midst of the way he was walking with the Lord? No. And the Lord is clear about that in Job 1 and 2. He doesn't deserve this. Um, so look at, uh, I won't read 13 through 19. He goes on to say, if you prepare your heart and repent in 13 through 19, basically God will restore this. But, but the, wick, the eyes of the wicked will fail. You're mis- you'll go on being miserable forever, right? And your only hope is going to be that you'll breathe your last. It's <laughs> not particularly gracious. All right, um, Job 20, look at Zophar's second speech. Remember, Zophar doesn't have a third one. Um, Job 20. Then Zophar, the name Mathite, answered and said, um, you know, he's going to go on for some time. Look at verse 6. Though his height mount up to the heavens and his hand reach to the clouds, he will perish forever like his own dung. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? He will fly away like a dream and not be found. He will be chased away like a vision of the night. The eye that saw him will see him no more, nor will his place any more behold him. His children will seek the favor of the poor and his hand will give back his wealth. His bones are full of youthful vigor, vigor, but it will lie down with him in the dust. Though evil is sweet in his mouth, though he hides it under his tongue, though he loathe it, loathe to, is loath to let it go and holds it in his mouth, yet his food is turned in his stomach. It is the venom of cobras with him. 
He swallows down riches and vomits them up again. God casts them out of his belly. He's talking about the wicked man. This is what you're going through. He will suck the poison of cobras. The tongue of a viper will kill him. He will not look upon the rivers, the streams flowing with honey and curds. He will give back the fruit of his toil and he will not swallow it down. For the profit of, for the, from the profit of his trading, he will get no enjoyment. For he has crushed and abandoned the poor. He has seized a house that he did not build. You, you, don't, you notice the specific charge here? In some way, in some way, Job, um, I've got the wrong verse there. It should be through 20, but it says through, or through 19, but it says through 90. Um, all right, so um, his charge is essentially you've been some kind of crook. And you're not going to get the fruit of your crooked hands. Um, and then he goes on to say, verse 27, The heavens will reveal his iniquity and the earth will rise up against him. The possessions of his house will be carried away, dragged off in the day of God's wrath. This is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage, heritage decreed for him by God. Um, so you're losing everything because you're wicked. Zophar's real focus is that God opposes the proud. And if you read both his speeches, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You want his favor? Be humble. Your problem is you're prideful and wicked, and so he opposes you. He opposes you. Um, are the charges against Job true? No. No. What's Zophar missing? Wise application. This is the relentless message of this book. Um, it, it's, it's you're using wisdom unwisely. You guys catch that? It's you're using wisdom like the proverbial wisdom unwisely. You're, you're like, um, like, it's like Paul's charge in 1 Timothy that we looked at in the elder meeting. Using the law unlawfully, right? Um, it's the same kind of thing. What do Job's friends believe? What do they believe ultimately? About God and about Job, what do they believe? Okay. Job's suffering is his own fault. Correct. That's, that's right. Um, why, let me ask the question. Why are they wrong? Is their problem theological? Correct. So in one sense, their theology's tight and good. But in another sense, it's problematic, right? Um, when you aren't applying God's justice to man's plight, right, in a wise way, and that should say, when you aren't wise in applying, that's what I put up here, you aren't wise in applying God's justice to man's plight, you either embrace a soft prosperity gospel or a heavy-handed legalism. You do one of the two. Right, so you, you're, um, it's, it's to, to, since you guys have all heard this phrase used a lot lately, they, they're, they're pressing into a quid pro, quo, quid pro quo relationship with God. Essentially, you get this for that. You get this for that. And you'll be prosperous. And anytime you are suffering... We all know we're all sinners, so it must be that. 
must be God exacting justice against you. Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Potentially, I don't entirely know <clears throat> all that's driving them, but certainly they go from kind of saying right at the very beginning, Eliphaz is like, "You were a righteous man who was upholding others," to, um, "You're a wicked sinner," and they're, <clears throat> and they, they just keep upping the ante every round. Every round. It's like, Job, you're not getting it. They just think he's not getting it. And they think they're being good friends. We're telling you theological truths. And you're not listening. And therefore, your suffering is going to continue. Now, by the end of this round of speeches, they're practically yelling at him. Right? And I think they think they're helping him. They think they're helping him. Um, and, And it's not... It's not good. It's not good. Now, I, I, I've, I press into this just from, um, we're learning how to walk wisely in this world. We're in the, so as those living in the new covenant kingdom, Christ being on the throne, um, we're, all, we're still in an already, Christ is on the throne, and a not yet. It isn't consummated yet. So we're still living with uh, sin and suffering Satan is active and death. We're still facing all of that. You don't always know why people are suffering. Good, godly Christian people may suffer and you can't always tell them it's the discipline of the Lord. If you repented, it would all be well. In some cases, that may be true. Some cases that may be true, but you need to know that, not assume that. Those are different things. It's not because it's theologically true. Well, we all deserve damnation because we're all sinners, so this must be some sin. Right? Yes, sir. Oh, John 9. What caused this man's blindness? Yeah, his sin or his parents' sin? Jesus is like, neither one of them. Right? Now, is it possible, by the way, from Old Testament text that this child could be suffering because of his, his parents' sin in some way? Sure. Sure. But they, they think they know, right? So that's, that's what I meant by the heavy-handed legalism. You, you become kind of a Pharisee. This is where you can carry your Calvinism and total depravity too far, right? Where you think because... Um, all men are totally depraved. Every time a man suffers, it must be some, some just reward, you know, if you will, for his sin. Um, and, and, you know, he must be under God's discipline. And you don't know that. You don't know that. Um, if, again, so here's the thing about walking wisely in this world. If you know you committed a sin and you can see how that sin ended up with some justice from God, repent. Repent, learn that lesson. If you saw somebody do something incredibly unwise and you watched them get warned about it and then you saw them bearing the fruit from that lack of wisdom, those wise decisions, 
point it out to them. Call them to repentance for foolishness. But if you see some saint walking along, all seems well, and suddenly they're suffering in tremendous ways and you have no idea why, don't assume it's God's justice against them or that it's his discipline for sin. You guys understand that? Okay? And so this is where we're trying to, um, you know, you come back to the, the good scholastic theologians who want to say, we distinguish all the time. We distinguish, right? We deny, we affirm, we distinguish. And I think distinguishing becomes important when you're approaching people. Sometimes when people are suffering and you don't know why, you sit there quietly with them, you cry with them, they say, why is it happening? And you say, I have no idea. Let's trust the Lord together. And you encourage them and they lament and you keep your mouth shut about it. You don't have to say, let me tell you all the ways why you're not trusting God well enough. Okay? Um, it's arrogant, right? And presumptuous. You don't know the mysteries of God. For all you know, God could be declaring in heaven, um, this man's blameless, go try him out, Satan. You have no idea, so you shouldn't assume otherwise, or like that you do. All right, um, next week we'll look at Job's re replies, and then um, likely, I think the one wise friend that Job runs into, my hope is to look at Job's replies, Job's one wise friend, you know who that is? Eliu, the Jewish man who comes to him. No more his Gentile friends, but his Jewish friend comes wisely to him. Um, and um, we'll hear him, and then we'll hear, hopefully, God's reply as well. So that's, that's my goal. We shall see. Let me pray. Father, we're thankful for the fact that you are God and we are not, um, that your word has so clearly um, taught us wisdom, both the wisdom that we learn of those things that are proverbially true. May we walk as those who walk in the fear of the Lord, who make godly, wise decisions, who work diligently, who trust you, who meditate on your law day and night, and be like trees that are firmly planted by streams of water that bear fruit in, their, in its season, that we prosper in those ways in marriage and that our children walk in godliness and that you bless the labor of our hands um, so that we um, see good financial fruit. Lord, may, may we see all of those blessings, but may we also know um, that, you, that you are at work in things that we can't possibly know about. And as we suffer, may we trust you when our suffering is because of our own obvious sin that we see the results of. May we repent um, where we suffer for reasons we do not know or where those around us suffer for reasons we do not know. May we be an encouragement uh, both to them and to ourselves to continue to trust you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.